Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Tim, and welcome back to Sex and Space, here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope you're doing awesome. If you are loving yourself a little bit of Sex and Space, there are lots of ways you can support us. Head on over to sexandspace.com forward slash shop and check out our lovely merch. Our book, The Education Forgot, a little book about the clitoris, is also available at sexandspace.com forward slash book. You can grab it as a downloadable PDF or as an awesome print version. Remember, you can also show your support by liking, rating, and subscribing wherever you found us. There is more awesome Sex and Space content over at TikTok and Instagram. Our handles are sexandspace.com. That is all one word, sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. This is episode 37. I had the wonderful privilege of chatting with Chenille Lau. They are an activist for queer and indigenous communities, a columnist for the NZ Herald, a model, political commentator, and Young New Zealander of the Year 2023. Completely instrumental in the successful campaign to ban conversion therapy in Aotearoa, they are also the author of a best-selling autobiography titled One of Them, which is great and is out now. Let's get into it. Chenille Lau, welcome to Sex and Space. Thank you very, very... Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for squeezing us in. (laughs) I know that it's covered in the book, but yeah, without giving the game away, um, the conversion therapy, um, you have your own experience with that, is that right? From... Yes. From a young age, yeah. Do you want a comfortable talking? Yeah, well, talking I, I, I don't really have a choice. I wrote an entire book about it. <laughs> Which is... If I decided that I was no longer comfortable speaking about my conversion therapy after writing a bloody memoir, that, <laughs> that would be strange. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it really starts with really benign things, right? I, I grew up in Fiji, which is a collectivist community, so your entire identity is linked to the community that you belong to. Mm. And I was growing up in a really small village outside the capital of Fiji with no internet and we didn't even have a phone. We had landlines and the only people that had phones were like, you know, maybe my dad. Mm. Uh, So in about class two, my friend brought nail polish to school and we put it on our toenails, which was a perfectly normal thing for me to it was like for me it was a perfectly normal thing to do and my teacher had a really august reaction and she was like boys don't paint nails and Mm. she got very rowdy and then as all good teachers do in Fiji they they beat me with a meter ruler (laughs) on the way they discipline children in the islands is put simply illegal in New Zealand yeah yeah okay (laughs) so the word made it home and it made it to the religious leaders 
who called me to the temple and asked me, do you want to be a part of your family? Do you want to live in this village? And uh, do you want to burn in hell for the rest of eternity? And obviously when you're asking a seven, eight year old, those questions, mm. and or, everything that I'd ever known and loved was my family and my community, so I would have done anything to stay a part of it. So I said, yes, of course I want to be a part of those things. At which stage they said that you have to change a few things about yourself if you want to continue living in this community and in your family. Um, it started with really benign things, such as prayers, which mm. got, then got escalated to enchanted bracelets, which was probably the more funnier thing for them to do. Um, Fiji voodoo, or black magic, is a common feature of the, of, of the islands. Um, okay. Of, particularly in Fiji. Um, my next-door neighbor was known to be a very powerful voodoo queen, um, and people actually believe in that superstitious thing and might even have an impact. I don't know. I mean, so it, the, the rumor was that she had cursed me to become more feminine, and so wearing enchanted bracelets would rid me of the evil spirits that were apparently making me queer. Clearly did not work. Mm. Um, and they got escalated to aversion therapy which was snapping yourself with a rubber band every time you have queer thoughts or feelings and uh, so the idea was that by multiple pairings of your queerness and snapping yourself with a rubber band the act of having queer thoughts or queer feelings would start eliciting pain by itself mm. so that accepting that you're queer would become a punishment by itself um, and then, and then all the way to violent things like uh, physical beatings and whippings none of them worked um, <laughs> um, yeah. and in 2014 I abruptly moved to New Zealand and that was kind of the end of it for, for Fiji at least mm -hmm. and then um, was it when you were it was when you were in New Zealand that I guess official conversion therapy was offered to you is that right when you were yeah. in in a yeah. hospital? It was yeah. in a war hospital. I, yeah. was in, I was in year 12, which is the second last year of high school. Uh, I was volunteering at Middlemore, Middlemore Hospital when a church leader walked up to me and offered to pray my gay away. And I said, no. So he looked at me and he said, it's hot, but do you know what's hotter? Hell. And now here I was at 17, three years after I'd moved away from Fiji, thinking that I had escaped conversion therapy. Mm. But it was actually not something I stopped. It's not something that stopped following me. Um, and then in that moment, I kind of realized I, I can, I must, and I will ban conversion therapy. And I did. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, what's, that's what's so amazing. I mean, I guess the... I don't know much about conversion therapy. Um, I suppose what, what would they... What was their intention, especially from such a, a young age? I mean, it sounds like it's, they think it's something for everybody, you know, that they can, from such a young child to, you know... Um, yeah. It's. I mean, I don't know. You could never really understand anyone's intentions unless you can get into their head. Um, it's a really subjective state of mind, isn't it? Um, some people, because when I was growing up in Fiji, it was a crime to be gay. So some right. people could very easily be protecting you from getting criminalized, right? Um, others simply do not like queer people, and so mm. they want to erase any sign of queerness. I mean, 
that makes sense for Fiji where there's currently a lack of education on queer identities but it doesn't make any sense for New Zealand where people actually have um, unlimited access to the internet unlimited access to education and people just simply choose to remain ignorant mm. um, the fundamental issue that I found was that a lot of religious people particularly mega churches who were had, had millions of dollars. Um, <laughs> they were so invested in, in keeping conversion therapy legal for churches mm. and for families. Um, yeah, so it, it was really driven by religious and religious bigotry. Yeah, it's... Um, and and the sort of shockwaves of colonialism as well with, oh, with yeah. that in... in I, just, yeah. <laughs> I talk about it in the book, but in a podcast, it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's too much to because if you think about it right all the Pacific indigenous communities have a queer identity that is specific to them you talk about Samoans mm. Tongans, Fakaleiti um, Fijians, Vakasalewa Papua New Guinea, Palopa I mean every single one of the and, and, and Hawaii have Mahu every single Pacific indigenous community had an indigenous queer identity prior to colonization that was really integral to their culture Colonialism, colonialism happened. It uprooted our indigenous queer identities and criminalized it. Um, as a matter of fact, the only time queerness has been criminalized, and the mm -hmm. first time it has been cr criminalized, is post-colonization when the English law was brought into the islands, including New Zealand. Yeah. The first time we criminalized homosexuality was when we got colonized. Yeah, I actually saw a, um, a map the other day that, that had across the world all of the um different different locations where you know pre-colonial some um some that you know have remained a little untouched but but have such diverse uh gender expression and yeah. it's um it's amazing you know some historic some current um yeah, it's it's very sad actually. I so, mean, if you just think about it, humans possibly could not be as boring as living in a binary of <laughs> men and women. There's billions of us, and you think that we are all. It's natural for us to be restricted to two categories. That's mm. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> there's no there's no such binary in, in every any other aspect of our life. I don't understand why we would we would have binaries when it comes to gender. Yeah. No. The um. But the that obviously was the um, the tipping point for you. That was it. Was that when you were like, "I need to, I need to ban this." It was. It yeah. was one of the tipping points, um, and I think it, it is possibly the moment that changed my life. Mm. Um, but then it it was also a very strange moment because I was 17 I didn't know anyone in politics or anyone in the media or anyone in the queer community because I still hadn't really gotten comfortable with being queer myself and so here I was trying to lead a political movement without any relevant skills <laughs> so you start with Google where you kind of find what the laws are mm. and uh, then I started looking for everything that had been done around it and we found that there had been petitions in the past parliament to ban conversion therapy. It's simply that the government hadn't done anything about it. Yeah, that's and very interesting. I wondered about the the political 
strategy that you that you put in place and whether some of the factors that were sort of external to that like the you know um i guess the the sort of parliament at the time you know those sorts of things were things you could 2017 was an interesting um, election. It was an election year. It was when New Zealand first Greens and Labour became government, and it was mm. New Zealand first who did not support the ban on conversion therapy. They had in, in uh, um, as per Labour Minister Grant Robertson, um, uh, it was New Zealand first who had blocked the ban on conversion therapy and wouldn't let the government put it forward as a government bill. Mm. Um, and so in that those three years that New Zealand First was in government, what we had to essentially do was create so much noise around it that when the 2020 election came, it was simply not an issue the pol- political parties could ignore. Mm. In fact, the Labour Party committed to banning conversion therapy just a few days before election night. So... It was. It was not something that was. Uh, peop- it was not something that the Labour Party or the National Party. In fact, the National Party voted against it at the first reading. The Labour Party wasn't so keen on jumping on the ban on conversion therapy, but we just made it impossible for them to ignore the issue because they were mm. getting hounded by the media. So mm. a lot of the political strategy was just make it really damaging for political parties to not commit to this ban. So Labour Party committed a few days before the election. And uh, to our surprise, they won a landslide election in 2020 and became Mm. a majority government. And so then they just had that power to sign it. Sign it well, into law. Yeah, because in in Parliament you need 61 votes to pass Mm. a law. They alone had 65, and because banning conversion therapy was a government policy. They all had to vote for it. It was their party policy, and so they were all had committed to vote for it. Yeah. Um, so they voted in favor. So I, um, as an activist or an advocate, they would say, already knew this law was going to come into place. My role was no longer advocating for it to be banned. It was ensuring that the best possible law could come into place. Yeah. And because so many New Zealanders had kind of gone, oh, Labour's got an end this is done, that task of making the law the best possible law became even harder because people no longer had an interest in trying to engage with the issue. Oh, I see. So it got watered, was getting watered down. and Yeah, so Labour yeah. had essentially said, you know what, we're going to do it. We have a majority. Now rest assured, don't worry about this. And the majority mm. of New Zealanders went, you know what, that is perfectly correct. Mm. What they hadn't realised that we we are still yet to see what the ban looks like and because so many people had already kind of just become uninterested when the labor party put forward their proposed legislation and i which i thought was rubbish mm, okay there was very little backlash for them or very little criticism for them oh, i see so they were trying to do a a safer political version as opposed to yeah yeah. Which was absolutely ridiculous because we knew that more than eighty percent of New Zealanders wanted a ban on conversion therapy. I mm. think one of the one of Labour Party's biggest flaws is that they cannot read their audience, which is you know when eighty percent of the country says we want to ban conversion therapy, and you're still kind of toing and froing. Well, right. <laughs> what what are you doing? Yeah. So, <clears throat> an outright ban would have. How would that have looked? Um, versus what what we're actually getting. 
Well, what we have at the moment is that it is a crime to practice conversion therapy on anyone under the on on anyone aged seventeen and under, mm-hmm. and it is a crime to practice conversion therapy um, of of someone of any age if that causes them serious harm. Mm-hmm. So, if you put an eighteen-year-old, the only time it is a crime to practice conversion therapy on an eighteen-year-old is when that eighteen-year-old can prove that they have suffered serious harm. Serious harm in criminal law means grievous bodily harm, like mm-hmm. having your arm chopped off or being stabbed. <laughs> yeah. And when you've got conversion therapy, which looks like prayers and enchanted bracelets and, you know, whippings or evasion therapy, like snapping yourself with a rubber band or, you know, f- being forcefully being forced to watch heterosexual porn or so- something like that. Um, no, okay. No, yeah. It's strange. It's, um, <laughs> I don't know how that works yeah. because there's a man in there as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but none of these things would really amount to grievous bodily harm mm. or, or a diagnosable mental health problem. So what we essentially have is a legislation that does not protect anyone aged 18 or above. I see, right. And even the definition of or the practice of conversion therapy on what exactly that that is must be quite hard to, to pin down as well. I mean, it's not... It's not that's the definition itself is not difficult because all you need is to establish a practice which has mm-hmm. the intention of changing someone's sexuality or gender identity and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem there would be um, establishing the intent. I see. So yeah. I could say that I am doing these things to you, but not with the intent of changing your sexuality or gender identity. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Of making you a better person, you know, it's it's when you when you put into when you put into law subjective states of mind like intention, what did mm. I intend to do? Then it becomes almost impossible to prove that that person was actually intending to do conversion therapy. Yeah, I see. And in terms of the the arguments that were put forward for, I guess allowing it to continue were they um what 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 sort of attack the were they that, taking the one that always came up was consent so what if the individual consents to conversion therapy now if you take for example a young person who has been who only really knows their family and mm. the community as a part of their identity and they've been told you either choose conversion therapy and you can be a part of your family and your community mm. or you don't go into conversion therapy and your family will disown you and your community will throw you out. Now mm. tell me, is it, can, can, is it, can that young person consent is really, <laughs> is really the question. Or, or you've grown up your entire life being told that if you are gay, you're going to be beaten. Mm. Your family will disown you. You're not likely to get a job. Now, that social coercion that that young person or that adult has been indoctrinated with mm. is enough to undermine any possible consent that that person gives. But the main argument really is that there's zero evidence that conversion therapy works. There's significant amount of evidence that demonstrates that conversion therapy lifts suicide rates and Mm. rates of diagnosable mental health problem. So why would we knowingly push someone who is struggling into a practice that doesn't work but will instead make them struggle more? Mm Consent was one of them. And then the other one was, of course, religious freedom, which I took 
I had no empathy for, absolutely zero empathy for religious people who want to practice conversion therapy in the name of religion. I mean, these are the people who think that abortion should be a crime in the name of religion. These are the people who think that people of color are less than in the name of religion. You know, it's yeah, it's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean there. That's um, and so in terms of in terms of where it's at and um you said it's it is there's there's more to do is what is what you're saying to yes there's more to do on the conversion therapy ban itself there's more to do on the on queer rights uh, as mm. a wider conver- uh, wider issue i simply just don't think that the issue of conversion therapy will be picked up again yeah. unless there is a case which shows us how unless it's an extreme case where someone has actually been pushed to the verge of death i mean i think we would have to go into a place like gloria vale and, <laughs> and yeah, see if, yeah. if, if that's happening i don't know if it's happening um, i have no evidence that it is happening and i'm not saying it is happening um but it just seems like that would be a kind of place yeah where are you gonna get the- where something extreme would happen yeah absolutely um in terms of now that there is legislation is there uh, better support for people that have um, maybe experienced it or um, avenues or places that people can go to for, you know, post-conversion therapy. Yeah. Therapy. The legislation itself, I would say, is symbolic because it sends a message to a lot of young queer people that it is now a crime to do a practice that intends to erase their identity so I think it's symbolic in the sense that it affirms young people's identity Um, during the movement to ban conversion therapy we had asked the government to extend ACC to cover mental injury as a result of conversion therapy which they refused Mm -hmm. and they also refused to put any money into an organization that could provide survivors of conversion therapy mental health support so there's actually no financial support there's no funding from the government for people who have suffered mental injury or even physical injury as a result of conversion therapy but a lot of the times physical injuries would be covered by ACC irrespective Mm. of what caused it Um, the Human Rights Commission has established um, a civil procedure to deal with conversion um, if you've experienced conversion therapy you can go to the human rights commission yeah um, and then there's, there's a civil procedure that you can take um, but then equally you can go through the civil procedure and it's there's no guarantee that you will get financial support but then there are now more and more organizations starting support groups um, mm. I believe outline is one of the organizations that now have a support group or are establishing our support group for survivors of conversion therapy yeah. so i think that ban and conversion therapy particularly the movement has started conversations that recognize that there are some queer people that are suffering from mental harm post the experience of conversion therapy mm. it's interesting yeah and the those sort of effects um I was wondering if, if any of the sort of support groups and stuff like that uh, created space for, say, parents or those religious leaders that had maybe put their kids th- or, or young people th- <laughs> put through that. Is there any... Um... I, I, don't, I don't know, mm. as a matter of fact, right now. Um, resources are so limited that yeah. extending you know, those groups to people who inflicted conversion therapy would 
possibly very further down the list. I mean, I don't think they would yeah. be the priority entirely because there's hardly any funding for people who have actually suffered conversion therapy. Um, but it's interesting you bring this up. There is a guy who is now openly gay who used to practice conversion therapy on other gay people. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and and what's happened a lot. A, all over the world is that a lot of people who used to practice conversion therapy, including an organization called Exodus, which is quite significant, I mean, they were one of the biggest ones, the leader of that organization also came out as gay. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that a lot of people who have really aggressively practiced conversion therapy in the modern time have actually been gay men who were just so afraid that other people would think that they are gay that they started overcompensating <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. to make everyone else straight. But that's not to say that every person who's practicing conversion therapy is closeted. In fact, I would say a majority of people who practice conversion therapy are not closeted queer people. Mm. But it's interesting that you talk about the, the religious um, aspects and the, the fear um, of ostracization or um, you know any of those any of those other those other factors um, it just seems to me that the parents involved may also be having those same fears and think this is the right yeah, um, I, I, approach I so I yeah agree. so I in terms of affecting positive change um, I wondered how you know that those efforts might in the future be best sort of focused it's always really difficult when you've got parents who are also a part of a certain church or a certain community mm. and they want to remain a part of that church or that community. Um, but you, what you will realize is that sometimes it just takes one person to stand up and say that what we're doing in this church or in this community is not right. And mm. suddenly, so many people who've had the same beliefs as you stand up with you. I mean, I've I've had this happen. I've heard this story so many times where a young person had said, I was in conversion therapy. And one day my auntie or my sister said, no, my, my brother's gay and we're not going to put up with this. And suddenly you hear stories about other people who have gay children who've simply just been hiding it because they, they're afraid that they are the only one. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is that now more and more people are feeling comfortable with their identity so you are very unlikely the only person to have a gay child or to have a trans child Um, and in the event you do speak out and the church and the community decide that you should no longer be a part of it you're better off not being a part of it so there's obviously amongst amongst the other work is 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 fighting for political change um but that education piece as well um and empowering people themselves with with education um and knowledge to engage in you know other more forms of i guess grassroots change whether it's a a courageous conversation with a family member or being able to stand up in an environment like you talked about like are those the sort of things that can affect can affect change yeah i I, i've I've said to people that before you decide to hate us get to know us Mm -hmm. um i feel as though say the a vast majority of people who do not like queer people do not know any queer people yeah yeah Yeah. i mean i've realized for example there was a national mp called nick smith Mm -hmm. Um, 
he voted against gay marriage, later realized that his son is gay. Yeah. And then apologized for voting against gay marriage. People are capable of change. It is just so that they need to be willing to change. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of the times when people are just upset with you, just simply just do not know you. They do mm. not understand your intentions. But then we have to acknowledge there are some people who have a vested interest in hating groups, and they don't mm. hate a certain group because of who they are. It is just so it is convenient to hate that group in that time. So think about the anti-vax movement, right? The people who were leading the anti-vax movement were making significant amounts of money mm -hmm. from the people that were following them. So they would say, we need funding to run our radio, or we need mm -hmm. funding to run our website, or we need funding to travel to this meeting. So these were the, you know, the top bosses. Yeah. And so they got all their followers to go on parliament grounds. And even while they were on parliament grounds, they kept saying, make donations to our website. And they were making thousands of dollars. Um, and their target at the time was Dame Jacinda Ardern. It was mm. really lucrative for them to hate Dame Jacinda Ardern. As soon as the COVID-19 uh, vaccines became less of an issue, they decided that the next lucrative target was queer and trans people, particularly mm. trans people. And now what I see is that the leaders of the anti-vax movement are the leaders of the anti-trans movement. And every single day on their website or their Facebook page, there's always a link saying, here's, this, here's an anti-trans article, here's where you can donate to support our cause. So mm. it's, currently, it's just really lucrative to hate trans people. My question really is, who's the next target? And are we going to allow them to be the next target? Because the only reason people are victimized is not, uh, it's because we just, good people just allow it to happen. Mm. Well, that's what seems so uh, on the face of people like um, Posey Parker. I know you had the, when, yeah. she, when she came, came to New Zealand. Mo motivations of, of someone like that to me seem very, in, you know, interesting to to analyze because it, it all seems to lead lead to to what you just said where she's found a lucrative right. um <laughs> uh you know avenue where she can sell books or do do whatever i'm not i'm not even sure what she's up to but you know become a a spokesperson or well you know when posey parker came to australia she was funded by a far-right christian organization which advocated against Abortion. Mm. Posey Parker accepted the money from an organization that advocates against abortion. Mm. And so the, the flying under the <laughs> banner of women's rights yeah, again is... We are supposed to believe that she's an advocate for the rights of women? I mean, yeah. come on. This is... It's, it's ridiculous. So what, what really is that... It's all about money, mm. all of the money, and you, you, you'll see a lot of these people. And I guess what was really surprising to me was that Posey Parker had, say, a dozen people at mm. most, the mm. supporter, and a majority of them were the organizers and her security. So if a vast majority of the people attending your event are people who have to be there, for example, they're organizing it or they are your security, then you've got next to no support from the general mm. public. Whereas about 5,000 people showed up for trans people. What we know as a matter of fact is that a vast majority of New Zealanders 
believe that transgender people should simply be left alone. Absolutely. And we, yeah. and then we get troublemakers like Posey Parker coming in and telling us that something that is a non-issue is something that should concern us all. It is mm. such a colossal waste of time. I mean, I am not bothered by who's peeing where. What I'm bothered by is the fact that my parents might not be able to afford their mortgage next year. Exactly, yeah. But do you find that there's... Um a slight issue or a major issue actually with the portrayal of some of those stories in, in things like the media where it feels like 50 50 yeah absolutely know? i think yeah. it's ridiculous because here's the thing here's what happens with mainstream media at the moment you get a pro-trans article mm-hmm. and the media will always publish an anti-trans article in the interest of balance but let me tell you let, let me just give you an example so what if Jacinda Ardern wrote an article supporting why we should decriminalize abortion. Mm. Would the media then run a column from Simon O'Connor saying why we should criminalize abortion? It wouldn't. That simply would not happen in New Zealand. Mm. So if we are not willing to have sexist columns written on the mainstream media in the interest of violence, why are we willing to do that to trans people? What I see is happening is that it's a repeat of history. The way that trans people are being treated now, Mm -hmm. the same way people of color were treated, the same way women were treated. Now, it's just happening to trans people. And what really strikes me is that some people of color and some women, you know, they went through what we are going through. And instead of standing up and saying, no, this is bigotry, they have decided to join in. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, um, I guess, engaging with people that have different different views, or what's the best way that you you sort of see if if someone has been, um, you know, drunk the Kool Aid a little bit and finds maybe some of what someone like Posey Parker is spouting, you know, like like. Won't somebody think of the children or whatever it oh, might be? The, the, the ways that, you know, those arguments can seem compelling, I'm sure, if you haven't done the deeper work to... Um, well, you know, you know. I, I just think about it, because if you think about religious communities, right, and drag queens, there has been this real hatred towards drag queens. Um, it's come, out, come out of nowhere, yeah. Yes, right, and I yeah. look at the criminal records... I look at the criminal records and there have been zero drag queens convicted of hurting children in any way. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the number of Catholic leaders that have been convicted of. And the list is endless. There yeah. so many Catholic leaders, prominent Catholic leaders who have sexually abused children. Mm. You're telling me that I should believe that a kid is safer in the church than they are in a public library with a drag queen. With a fabulous drag queen. Yeah, and, and you know, this is, a, this is a thing. You cannot reason with stupid. There no. are people who know the facts and yeah. they just will lie to you. But these are people that you're not going to change the minds of. It, it's no. just far too late. But luckily, these are people who are about to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what we need now is a real expose of of the facts. Um, mm-hmm. For example, we need to start 
openly criticizing Christianity and the leaders of it. I mean, the religion itself is not problematic for most people who practice it because they take the good parts and they leave the bad parts out. Leave it, yeah. It's like eating a fish. You don't choke on a bone. You eat the meat. Um, <laughs> so, it's a good analogy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and... and but but the the leaders, I think it's the leaders who intentionally uh, spread misinformation because again they say, they know it is lucrative. Um, so we need to start openly talking about the fact that it is not drag queens who are dangerous to children; it is Catholic leaders. Mm-hmm. And once we start normalizing that conversation, it becomes impossible for people to go around spreading misinformation that drag queens are the danger. Mm-hmm. I think what we currently have right now is that people are too scared to criticize Christians. Yeah, no, I think you could be right there. the The spectrum that I see, I sort of see, where you know you've you sort of talked to it before, where you've got people at one at very one end that that you're never going to um, yeah. affect their beliefs. They're yeah. fully ingrained. You're not going to persuade them otherwise. They haven't got there with logic necessarily, so logic's not even going to get them out. Yeah, those are the people who believed that Jacinda Ardern was like drinking children's blood. Like precisely. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um in terms of affecting positive change for um people who, you know, are on the the other side of that spectrum mo- moving yeah. across is it about um Seeing, seeing more trans people in the mainstream sometimes, media, yeah. better stories. Me, you know what? Go and watch Heartstopper, something like Heartstopper. Beautiful show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you watch that and you just think, how could you hate? How could yeah. you hate, you know, those queer kids? Like, how, how could you possibly hate queer kids? They're so innocent. They're afraid of... They, they have the same concerns as every other young person. It, it's just... Sometimes you just need to listen to real life stories of queer people to understand that one, we're not a threat, two, we're not after your children. <laughs> In fact, keep your children away from me because they are a threat to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. so I think I think people just need to learn real life stories. But equally, I think the media need to stop portraying queer people as the threat. I think the biggest issue that we have in New Zealand is that queer people get portrayed as some sort of evil thing. Um, and the reason why they do it is that once you think something is a threat to you, you do not think twice before you destroy it. Take a mosquito, for an mm-hmm. example. You yeah. don't think twice before killing a mosquito because you think it is a threat to you and you think it is evil. What we have currently is this concerted effort by conservatives to vilify queer people mm-hmm. once you convince majority of New Zealanders that queer people are an evil threat to you then they don't think twice before they start a process of trying to erase us yeah and the motivations behind that are purely political money or I ideological purely lucrative I would say I don't think yeah. any of these people really truly really. hate queer people they just uh, particularly leaders I don't think they hate queer people for example you take someone like Brian Tamaki mm. his entire life it's funded by his followers so you keep lying you keep 
instigating fear into your followers that their children will be harmed by queer people and then those people out of fear keep giving you money to keep doing your anti-queer harm it's it's mm-hmm. a cycle it's yeah. a cycle you you instigate fear you propose a solution you put a price on the solution yeah my god it's so vile <laughs> unbelievable it is yeah um so then what next what next for you oh I, <laughs> I don't know at 23 I feel like I've done enough to sustain me yeah <laughs> till, till 40 you know I've I've led the movement to ban conversion therapy I've become very lucky to be in Forbes 30 under 30 I became young New Zealand of the year I write for the Herald I wrote a best-selling book mm-hmm. um, so I've done impressive yeah, maybe take it. I, I for one, appreciate you immensely. Um, I think what you're doing is brilliant, and I think that genuinely, for my two young children, um, people like you are making the world better for them as they grow up, and if they can grow into the authentic humans that they're meant to be. Um, you know that's all I want as a parent so I want to say thank you very much and I will looking forward to your book <laughs> so <laughs> thank you okay. that's all good I think it's yeah it's crazy what you have to go through sometimes um, thank you very much for your precious time um, and uh, yeah we'll wrap it up there thank you heaps thank you really hope you enjoyed that one you can check out more of chenille over on instagram and on twitter and that is chenille lal s-h-a-n double e-l l-a-l before we sign off we wanted to remind you to check out our book available at sexandspace.com forward slash book to download and buy don't forget to leave us a like follow comment or review wherever you're tuning in from your support really means the world to us Until next time, safe travels, and see you on the next episode.